0: January 15th, 2006. It's a Watch From Pedro show. from Ro show. Uh, first uh, show of the year, 2006. How are you, Brother Matt? Good. Everything is good. Uh, we're recording through Peak, new piece of software.
1: Constant fine-tuning.
0: <laughs> Constantly in search of the gra-
1: grail, search- <laughs> radio recording grail.
0: Uh, started off with an alternate version of Countdown with John Coltrane. From his giant step sessions. Uh, Then we uh, had Nels Klein and Jeremy Drake with B plus C. A two. Banning Center. Yes, from a CD called Banning Center. Uh, That just out from Nels Klein. He gave it to me when we were... um, Driving up uh, to NorCal for those uh, Banyan gigs uh, at the end of 2005, which, by the way, we uh, lost the New Year's Eve show in Mendocino because of the heavy flooding. But uh, we're going to make them up. I don't know. Maybe uh, March or something. Because uh, I'd like to play there. <laughs> never have.
1: Yeah, it's way up there,
0: yeah, it's about three hours north of San Francisco. Uh. The rains were hard, man. We played Fairfax on the thirtieth. Uh, gig was okay, but after the started coming down big time, and Perk's uh, SUV almost got washed away. Wow! So yeah, pretty intense. Um, and him, uh, Perk, and Willie were out there. It's like swimming around in this flash flood. Yeah torrent four feet of water just wailing jeez! and uh, but luckily uh, all was preserved uh, on the way up me and Nels uh, rode together in a new boat and uh, we did a little interview a little spiel so without further ado it was Mr. Nels Klein what from Pedro
2: show my own music is pretty much a personal journey into my own kind of, uh, not just sonic fascinations, but also my emotional world, you know. And I write pieces that, that quite often uh, play on my desire to hear sound and emotion merge, so I, I get emotional uh feelings and, and a certain kind of catharsis sometimes from my own music that I don't expect from everyone else's music because everyone else has his or her own terrain to map out and I'm always fascinated to to take that journey with them as well I like to do both I guess is what I'm saying yeah don't you think
3: that that kind of helped you when it came to Mousin <laughs> absolutely yeah absolutely I think now my pipe, the other way you think It'll come back, the mouse, and will somehow
2: play on your uh, endeavor. A- absolutely. I, mean, I, I have the kind of personality, I guess, where I don't really have a, st- a strong desire to always be the leader conceptualizer. I actually find it rewarding to play other people's music. That said, I can't do one or the other all the time. I'm sure I could get used to playing my own music all the time, but. It's not really uh, uh, hasn't been all that financially rewarding so far. So it's been nice to be able to play music I care about and keep working and keep getting really nice offers from people to play good music. So I'm lucky in that regard. But yeah, the two do uh, tend to inform each other conceptually and technically. I think
3: that was a stretch, right? With the, especially with the trio where you were just immersed in your own composition. I was that, still, was, that was hard with the monies,
2: I know. But, <laughs> still, you dared and you didn't let that compromise you. Well, I just worked a day job, frankly. I mean, I, I chose that. I didn't want to put the pressure of trying to make my own music my sole source of income um, so I could have the freedom to do any kind of music I wanted. Particularly in Southern California, the rewards for playing instrumental music with a lot of improvisation are few, so I think I was pretty realistic about that. But that said, I got lucky and uh, had the concert series at the Alligator Lounge for a few years and uh, put out some records that people heard and actually really built up a, a really nice bass. Well, originally I called the band Bartholomew and the Trio Mutiny. I they said they, I had to put my name on the, on the thing. But, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was kind of uh, it was the first band I ever led. So I didn't actually, although I'd been playing since I was in my early teens, I'd never actually led a band until 1989 when I formed the trio. And uh, prior to that, it'd always been kind of uh, I guess you could call democratic ensembles where everyone contributed and nobody really led the band. Um, the group that I was in for 11 years with my brother Alex and Jeff Gauthier and Eric Von was called Quartet Music. And Eric did kind of lead the band musically, but Jeff kind of ran the band uh, as far as organization and taking care of business because the rest of us were hopeless, you know. And he uh, really wanted the music to get out there. So uh, everybody kind of pitched in, and that's the kind of band I was in most of the time, or a band where everyone had maybe an ill-defined role that they eventually fell into. So the trio was the first thing where I said, okay, I'm going to lead the band, we're going to play my music, I'm going to do the album covers or whatever, everything. And, uh... You weren't going to shrug. <laughs> no <laughs> shrugging, you know, it, it eventually it kind of became a little uncomfortable for the band members, but I, I, I kind of tried to make it clear from the outset that that was the deal, you know, we are just going to play my tunes. And, uh, and in my own trio, the singers, it's the same way. Uh, but we don't get to work as much right now, and also they live in Oakland, and I live in Los Angeles, yeah, yeah. so.
3: But then you also put in the time with some mentorships, you know, like with Charlie. Yeah.
2: How about those experiences? Well, it was kind of mind-blowing when I were, think back on it now. I mean, I was in my 20s, my mid to late 20s, playing with Charlie Hayden, Liberation Music Orchestra West Coast, also with Julius Hemphill, the Jaw Band, and uh, Finigolia. And, you know, Charlie was one of my heroes when I started playing with him. He was an idol, actually, I have to say. And that music, uh, which was political in nature as well as aesthetic, was right where my mind was at that time, my heart. And also, John Carter and Bobby Bradford were in that group, who were people that I had gone to hear all through the 70s. and had gotten to know uh, from going to their concerts. Bobby and I first played together when I was 18. He was looking for a guitarist and I was going to Occidental College and I sucked, but he was very nice about it. Uh, (laughs) um, It it was pretty powerful to, uh, and I'm not saying I played well on these gigs, but I tried my hardest and and, I was very lucky to be that close to but I have to say I consider it to be artistic greatness, you know, Julius, Charlie, the people in Charlie's band, the people in Julius's band, uh, certainly Vinny and a lot of the people that I've gotten to know over the years. Um, and then I went into kind of a rock phase. I was in a band called Block while I was doing all this other music, and, okay. and played rock and roll, kind of more of a funk kind of band, actually, uh, at first, at least and uh, sort of led a double life and I think that I kind of continue to in that most of the jazz people that I play with at least a lot of them don't know much about my rock life and rock people I think are a little more curious about my jazz life but don't really know that much about it either unless I tell them about it which I like to do Um, and I think there's something about the guitar that makes that possible electric guitar especially and it suits my personality as well, I think, to be able to rock out and play uh, with a lot of intensity, I guess, in that sense. And also to be part of a group, orchestral fabric, team player, um, stepping out, stepping back. It, it's all equal to me. When did you first hear uh, Sonic Youth? Uh, 1981, I was working at a Bonaparte record distributor behind Zed Records in Long Beach, and their first EP was released on Neutral, and there were only, I think, three American labels that this distributor carried. One was Roar Cassettes, one was uh, Twin Tone, and the other was Neutral. So strangely, I didn't get into much of the import music at that place. My three favorite records in the warehouse were uh, that first Sonic UTP, which I sort of liked. I didn't love it. It sounded, when I think back on it, I used to think it sounded sort of British-influenced, which I don't hear when I listen to it now. But uh, I loved the Bad Brains, Roar Cassette, and uh, the first Replacements album, Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash. Those were really memorable releases. I got more into Sonic Youth when Byron Coley put on Confusion Sex one day at Rhino Records, and I was in the back room, and and I heard uh, She's in a Bad Mood, uh, followed by uh, uh, Oh God, Mental Block, uh, really had an impact on me, especially uh, that one side of the record. And that's when I went to New York kind of looking for them. I was there to go audition for Paul Motion's band in 1983. And I went thinking I was going to find this sonic youth band <laughs> in, the, in the village or somewhere. And I missed him by a week. So I didn't see him live till 84. I never saw him with Bob Bird. Did you ever hear of Bronca? Bronco? Yeah, yeah. I, you know what, if I, there was something about that which I feel like somebody had to do what Glenn Bronca did, but all the posturing with the jackboots and the arm waving kind of turned me off, and the, the extreme volume I can appreciate more now in retrospect than I could at the time. Um, but like I say, I, I think that somebody had to do that work, and he did it. He set the precedent. Beautiful overtones, the open tunings, um, the grandeur of it. Um, but I always had trouble with the drums, almost. <laughs> <laughs> the flaccid drum set playing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Couldn't get into the drums. <laughs> so, but you heard of Bronca before you heard the Sonics. Um, I think it was kind of a concurrent yeah. thing. I don't think I understood the connection until oh, someone, some, yeah, till someone explained not. it to me. And then, of course, made sense. You know, Just like uh, the fact that they had been checking out Reese Chatham or uh, whatnot. Made sense, but I didn't understand all that.
3: I even had the Theoretical Girl single and didn't
2: realize it was. Uh, well,
3: that, I would just get
2: records because of the cover. Wow. I, was, I was working at Rhino Records in those days, and so I knew everything that was out there. Um, and and eventually, around this time we we're talking about, I became the, the indie and import buyer, and that's how I met Sonic Youth. Uh, as a band was because I put on an in-store appearance with them at The Meat and Creed when Bad Moon Rising came out, which I did not only because it was my favorite record by far that year, but uh, it was a great excuse. I had met Thurston and Kim, but it was a great excuse to meet the rest of the band and hang out with them because I was becoming an annoying uh, fan, you know, so super fanboy. I mean, I know I was super annoying, because I I just couldn't, I really couldn't contain myself. I loved their music so much, I didn't know... The foam and the gush. foam and the gush. I didn't know what to do with myself.
3: (laughs) So this, like, legitimized it a little bit.
2: Well, it did for me. here to do a meet-and-greet. Oh, yeah. It was fun for me. I was such a fan. And it was sweet. It was harmless, but, but, uh... I just wanted, I wanted to hear as much of their music as possible. And I was you pretty. It had obsessive. influence on you, very you know, big. You had all this work you've already done on your guitar, right? Well, it definitely changed the way I thought about playing the guitar, um, in terms of sound, because I tried to get, and still do try to get, a lot of those sounds, but just in standard tuning. And uh, uh, it was one of those things that I I had such an immediate sense of identification with that it just seemed. To spring out of some kind of planet all its own, which I would have at that time considered some kind of perfect realm. So I, w- I was just enchanted, truly enchanted and inspired. Early influences? I think Yardbirds. Oh yeah, Jimi Hendrix, The Birds, Yardbirds. Certainly Jeff Beck. Loved Jeff Beck. Hendrix was the guy who kind of crystallized the idea of being a guitarist for me. I think before that I was inspired by guitar and listening to the Rolling Stones with my brother, and the birds, certainly, Jim McGuinn, uh, surf music. But then when the first Hendrix album came out, that was it. It was all over. I had to play guitar. It was the most exciting sound ever. You know, I'd say that Jimi Hendrix and Jeff Beck with the Yardbirds and then later the Jeff Beck group pretty much cemented the idea of guitar as my path. And then later, of course, uh, there are just tons of people. Uh, When I was in my mid-teens, Johnny Winter was really important to me and Dwayne Allman. I used to love Peter Frampton's playing in Humble Pie. And Also, uh, thinking about somebody else recently that I used to try to imitate besides Peter Frampton and Humble Pie and Dwayne Allman. There were some guitars I used to sort of play like. It just came to mind. My brother was really into Frank Zappa, uh, Black Sabbath and Blue Cheer, Captain Beefheart. So I heard all that music, although that was sort of more his thing. Zuhorn Rollo? Yeah. Yeah. My appreciation for Zuhorn Rollo sort of happened later when Clear Spot came out because my brother kind of tortured me with Trout Mask. <laughs> yeah. I used to think, please don't put that on today. <laughs> well, what about the blues thing? should well, Jimmy? Yeah, well, that, that's when I started to discover... You know, at first I was probably like most suburban guys, really into the British blues rock thing. I used to love freeze's first album, Paul Kossoff's guitar playing on that. Um, but then, yeah, I finally discovered real blues, and that's... Uh, that was something that was really great about hippies. When I think back on it, listen, you look at those Fillmore posters, for example. You just see what these triple and quadruple bills are. You see that hippies like folk music, they like blues, they like jazz, and they like rock. You know, sometimes you got to hear all four so-called genres in one night. And I think that coming up with that kind of diversity has has had a lasting effect. And the blues certainly being a guitarist became essential and, and, you know, pivotal. It's like the core music. It's the basis of all great music, I think, except possibly, of course, Western European music. But for guitarists and rock and rollers and jazz people, it's all about the blues. Yeah, where do you think the guitar is going nowadays? I have no idea, but I have to admit that, that I'm amused that the guitar is still popular. Because I remember in the early 90s, in pop music in England, it was all about de- the death of the guitar. And they were trying to prove that the guitar as, a, as the preeminent uh, instrument of popular music was over. It was all going to be, I guess, synthesizers or something. And then Sonic Youth exploded and then so-called grunge. And the guitar was back, if it ever left. It never really left and has continued to be sort of the voice, the instrumental voice, of most popular music other than hip-hop. And uh, it interests me that hip-hop is probably the single most important revolution in music, just in terms of not just the sound but or the language, but the methodology. You know, to have music created that essentially doesn't have to have any so-called real instruments on it, and that this microtonal, because it's usually based more on rhythm than on pitch, is uh, to have microtonality and, saving possibly no real instruments, performed in the top twenty of all records or whatever people are buying by the millions, is a revolution. You know, so maybe that means that the guitar will not hold the sway over popular music forever that it has but it seems kind of like the guitar will never die there's something about it that people respond to and I don't really worry about where it's going but but uh, I think that well, you're always saying start your own band and after concerts I think more people go to hear bands and pick up a guitar and start doing something original on it the longer it'll go and the more interesting it'll it'll get you yeah. know any yeah. tuning? any sound. Of course, we're having a renaissance in effects pedals right now. I was just going to ask that.
3: Jimi <laughs> Hendrix was one of the first experiment with devices to alter guitar sound. You're uh, quite into uh,
2: effect pedals. Yeah, it's something that I never really decided I was going to do. It just, it just sort of happened by itself. I mean, certainly, I was influenced at an early age by uh, so-called psychedelic guitar. Which meant fuzz as, and feedback were, were crucial. And, and certainly the, the original feedback guys were probably Pete Townsend and Jeff Beck. And then Hendrix picked up on what they were doing and took it to his own level, which was pretty high level, as we know. Um, Link Ray was a distortion guy, just like Paul Burleson with the Johnny Burnett Rock and Roll Trio accidentally got a distorted sound on Twain Kept a rolling in those songs, um, realized that a tube was loose in his amp. And then so then he would do it on purpose, he would loosen it on purpose to get that sound. And uh, and so yeah, I loved all that stuff. And so when I was 12 years old, I didn't know a damn thing about how to play the guitar, but you better believe I had a lot of fuzz and feedback going. That's all I used to do. You know, I'd I play I didn't know any chords, I just did basically simple riffs and feedback. That's why when the first Stooges record came out, my brother bought it, we read about it. The critics basically hated it, but it, the description of it and just the way they looked on the cover, we figured this had to be a really cool record, so my brother, that's how we bought records in those days, until Underground Radio um, came around in about 70, 71 on KBPC. Um, but Alex bought the first Tooges record, and, and uh, I'm not saying that we were good, because we weren't, but we thought that they sounded kind of like us, and said they had a cool singer, you know. And it was really the aesthetic and the simplicity of some of the riffs and the, and the radical fuzz and wah-wah that, that was exactly what we were going for, you know. So uh, later I stopped using all any effects at all. When I played in high school, I just had a uh, uh, Gibson 335 plug into an Acoustic 150 with the reverb on. That was my sound. A lot of treble and uh, uh, a little bit like D boontone tone actually, not quite so trebly. And certainly he wasn't a big reverb guy, but, but I was. And uh, what happened was that, that uh, some effects stuff got left at at my mom and dad's house and I started playing with my brother and a guy who played analog synthesizers and all kinds of uh, flutes and things into effects and we had an improvising trio eventually called Spiral and Spiral in Spiral I had to start using some of these boxes that were lying around my old fuzz box Vinny Golia had left his echo plex there and I started using that stuff and I got a volume pedal because Steve Howe and Robert Fripp used volume pedal and that seemed natural and pretty soon I was starting to use effects, and I, and uh, and this was at a time when I thought I was going to be a jazz guitarist, you know, a, like a straight-ahead jazz guy. I was feeling the pressure to be Joe Pass Jr. or something. And uh, it's very amusing when I think back on the fact that I had this little polytone mini brute jazz amp, and the, the week I got it, we started doing this spiral stuff. So here, pretty soon, I was playing it all the way up with Plex and Fuzz, and the thing was pretty much blowing up. <laughs> and it was just such the wrong app to have purchased for this. And I just realized I had an ability to use this stuff, and now I just think of, of, of effects pedals as color, you know, as, as color and texture on sound, and I seem to be able to visualize some kind of orchestral and flowing way to utilize them that I hope isn't gratuitous, and but also it's, I think, not only to expand the palette of the instrument, but also heighten, uh, heighten the emotional content at times, I think. You know, if you can get the guitar to sound like somebody being squished to death by a, by a giant dinosaur or something, oh, it's, a, it's a good sound, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a horrible scream or shriek. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> one of the beauties of it is how malleable it is, and how Um, John Abercrombie used to joke that uh, because so many things can change the sound of the guitar not just your fingers but the choice of strings, the choice of pips, the choice of of electric or acoustic, hollow body or solid body, then you get to distorted or clean and and reverb or no reverb and fuzz or no fuzz, wah-wah or no wah-wah, you get to millions of different things. He said it just causes massive option anxiety playing with like some of these John Cale songs I'm always reminded uh, because it's not always my first impulse to play those chords certainly it's what you're saying but I remember Jimmy Rolls the great jazz pianist turning to Eric Von Essen at a gig when they were playing in a restaurant in Hollywood and right in the middle of what he was playing he said I don't know what it is Eric but sometimes when it says F7 you, just play a fucking F7. <laughs> and a lot of pianists dress it up, and they go really yeah. far out with their extensions. And uh, and he's right. He's right, and I have to remind myself of that, not because I'm so advanced, but because I do tend to maybe uh, dress things up a little too much at times. But I love the sound of close-voiced, close-voiced chords, yeah. which t- sometimes entail a little stretchy on the fingers, but uh, there's a great guitarist in the... Northwest named John Stoll, who's probably one of the ultimate jazz guitars. He's uh, a stretchy chord genius, and uh, I like to try to get those sounds to overlap, and that's in a way also the fake Sonic Youth sound for me is playing a lot of unison notes, so sometimes yeah. you have to kind of stretch your fingers pretty far to get the notes to be out of tune with each other a little bit, to create that <laughs> natural chorus yeah. that I love so much, which is why rock and roll is still, with two guitars, still one of the greatest and most enchanting sounds to me, because when they get slightly out of tune with each other, they're chiming away, nothing oh, yeah. sounds better than that. <laughs> it's wild. You know, certain people hate guitar, but I have to admit, I don't love it just because I play it. I think I'd love it even if I didn't play it. Well, that's why playing Contemplating the Internet was so enjoyable because it was, I think, and if you don't mind me uh, waxing ecstatic, um, not only was it a a very well-conceived piece thematically uh, and very dynamic musically, I think that the, the controlled use of the guitar to become not just guitar but also to reference other sounds and other instruments even uh, was a challenge for me and and rewarding one because it all referred to the main idea of the piece or of each song or of, you, know, you know you would say to me you know propellers bicycle chains um guys whistling you know from the deck, and, and or you know, maybe even insulting each other in jest or whatever, trying to get these gestures and sounds... Now we're down at, in the hall. Yeah, exactly. Um, w- was something that is the kind of challenge that I really enjoy, but also because the, the thematic material, lyrically, the story as it were, was so important to me to be told and it was, and it was so well conceived, it was rewarding, on. it was multi-level reward is what I'm saying. And in that sense maybe yeah, it was a good job to ask me to do because I do like to try to, to make the guitar fit something maybe more than just a guitar's role uh, so that the music sounds symbolic of what you want it to be symbolic of but also uh, maybe even somewhat novel, you know what I mean? Exciting oh, yeah. to the ear, where people say like, Wow, what is that? How did they do that?
3: Well, what kind of equipment are you using now?
2: Oh God, I have so much equipment now, Mike. Okay, <laughs> what's the Wilco setup? Um, I'm playing a, a Marshall J- JTM-45 head with a 412 bottom that's Jeff Tweedy's. It's beautiful, beautiful amp. And I've just got all my gadgets uh, I've got gadgets on the floor, and I've got them on a road case that's what I call my science project, which is where my old Electro harmonics, 16 second digital delay is, and a Chaos Pad, and my reverb. Sometimes I have the Moogerfooger Murph up there, or the Ring Mod. So I have all kinds of. Uh, this is in arm's reach. So in can arm's reach. To... Yeah, so I can get a loop going and then manipulate the loop, or reach over and do. Uh, Echo Plex effects with the Chaos Pad, and then uh, and, and many beautiful little guitars, uh, but still mostly the 59 Jazzmaster I bought from you. That's my main guitar, um, and uh, it's it's. Uh, but you got a baritone? Do you use it with them? I'm not using the baritone with them. I use my 12 string. I'm playing couple of a couple of different lap steels. I bought a 12 string. The Puppethead? head. It's the uh, uh, Jerry Jones. Oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've got a couple of Jerry Jones, twelve strings now. One in L.A. and one in Chicago. And I have a puppet ha- Uh Lynn Lynn Johnston gave me a Fender twelve. Yeah, it's beautiful. But it's so fancy that I don't take it out much because it's I can never replace it. It's he it gave it to me, but it's worth a lot of money. I found out. It's beautiful, custom paint, all that stuff. But uh, I play 12-string and lap steels, and a stand of up or sit down? I'm standing up. I have to stand up. I like full physical involvement. Even with the lap? Oh, the lap I have to sit down. Yeah, yeah that's, that's different. Fine. Oh, sorry, yeah. Um, I tried standing up. You no, know, I tried to stand up with it because one of my lap steels has legs. It's freestanding. And I tried that, and then I just felt like I was in a cockpit or something. <laughs> I felt like I was a, a Steve Howe or something. You know, and I was on some weird little guitar island, so I, I didn't. So I stopped doing that. I tried it for a while. Um, I think I like. I'm, I grew up playing a lap steel in my lap. I had a lap steel when I was 13 that one of my mom's friends gave me. That was her dad's. I still play it with Wilco and Old Gibson, and uh, I'm just used to playing it in my lap. I finally s- just said, "That's it. You gotta sit back down." Trippy tunings. Uh, no, not much. Uh, I, play, I play one in G and one in, in standard. And I play a lot of my stuff in standard that people think is not standard. I tried to come up with a way to make it sound convincing, but uh, otherwise are, I get really mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm no genius. You oh, know? that's okay. <laughs> you do it with the finger. Yeah, I try to slide it around so that there's a, an illusion of not only uh, open tinning, but an illusion at times of pedal steel rather than lap steel. Um, because some of the Wilco material from their older records has pedal steel uh, that a couple of different people play, either dobro or pedal steel on a couple of songs. So I try to ape that a little bit, and I love that sound. Now, uh, when you do singers, equipment change? Well, I use my old Oliver amps. Know, I have these old Oliver. amps, the guy that made the Ampeg B15 flip top. Yeah. They're really clean. So that's what I use at home. And, and I'm the sad thing about the singers is that ideally with them I would have four guitars because uh, I like to play my 12 string. Sometimes the baritone. Different. Uh, I have an open tune Hagstrom. Probably fly to these jazz festivals and whatnot. I can only take one guitar uh, unless there's some way I could finagle to get two guitars, but I can never take four, so I have to kind of think ahead of time when I'm writing songs, wait a sec, I don't need another baritone guitar song, I can't take it to the gig, <laughs> but ideally I'd have baritone, 12 string, jazz master, standard tuning, and a Hagstrom open tune. More effects? Less effects? It's all pretty much the same. About the same, yeah. About the same. I don't always bring the chaos pad and all that stuff. I'd love to bring it for Banyan, but I know that there's going to be opening bands, and I don't have a, I don't have a pedal board right now uh, in LA, so I'm gonna to have to sit there on the floor plugging in about ten boxes and trying to hurry, and it's going to be a nightmare. And so I just try to keep it a little bit simpler. But I think Banyan, ultimately, I'd love to have the the MRF and you know, for filtering and chaos pad and really, really get into it even more in terms of sound processing, but I'm trying to keep it to what we've done before right now, just because it's pain in the ass as it is just without the pedal board to set up fast. The funny thing for me is is trying to play without a volume pedal, um, which I don't try to do because I love having the volume pedal just even to cut the hum when I'm not playing uh, with a single coil. Yeah, I use it as a, as a noise reduction. That's why uh, a lot of times people ask me, how do you use all your distortion with your single coil pickups and not just get tons of noise? It's because I'm always using the volume pedal. You can't tell. And and uh, I've used it for so long that it is pretty much second nature. Just like one time I was playing with uh, members of the Rova Saxophone Quartet and a lot of improvisers in San Francisco and Carla boslich was there and Chess Smith, all these great people. And my 16-second digital delay, which I'd just gotten back from being fixed, and the guy had had it for months, it broke as soon as I plugged it in. And I found myself on the gig doing things and then reaching with my right hand for it. And it wasn't there. I had to take it down. (laughs) And I did it about 20 times. It's just second nature at this point. I've used these gadgets for so long that they are kind of a part of how I play, you know.
3: Improvised music very much a talent to be good at that.
2: What's what's your insight? Well, I'm not exactly sure I have any bold insights except for the fact that by listening as long as I have, I can imagine sounds. And from playing for as long as I have, and I've been lucky to play with a lot of people uh, with whom I could experiment freely uh, for many, many years, then I think one can come closer to manifesting what one is imagining, and I think that that marriage of imagination and manifestation is what starts to make it make sense in the moment, and I think being able to, it's, a part, it's partly being able to react and understand what other people are playing, um, but also an ability to imagine what you're going to play and come close to pulling it off. Um, if that in itself isn't inherently rewarding, then you probably shouldn't really worry about it too much and not improvise that much. But I think you have to be willing to risk looking like an idiot, and some people are not not willing to do that. Other people, I think, if they overthink it or they get, they're get they afraid it's going to be indulgent or suck or someone will make, make fun of them, uh, then they kind of lock themselves up. They can't let it out. Um, I just don't worry about that stuff because I started doing it and liking that kind of endeavor right away, almost. And So for me, it's just what I feel natural doing. Far more than I feel natural doing, say, a session. Yeah, I was just going to say, what about this situation, the session? I get one or two a year. (laughs) I just did one, in fact. with a woman named Alicia Bay Laurel who's an, uh, a hippie woman, basically, in her 50s, who ha- is a singer-songwriter as well as visual artist. And um, and it was it's hard, I think, to uh, step into a situation, sometimes especially hard, if it's what I consider to be a classic or, say, maybe even generic musical scenario where you're supposed to sound like somebody else. And... Uh, you, learn, you have to be able to learn a song quickly. In my case, I can usually learn a song pretty quickly, but my reading is only so-so, and uh, but even more so, relax into the form, and at the same time, if the person's doing something conceptually that's a little bit off, that was one of the reasons they have me there, You have to be able to understand what they want and do it, and sometimes it's really hard because they're kind of trying to reinvent the wheel. The the song is really familiar, but they're wanting you to say, oh, make it sound like you're playing the song, but you're screaming. That's what this woman, Alicia, said at one point. You're the woman screaming at the guy, and so she wanted me to be really extreme on the song, but the song wasn't extreme. So I had to somehow refer to the chord progression, which was kind of almost like a ragtime song, and and, uh, and at the same time be like sort of Jimi Hendrix or Jeff Beck or something. And she was really uh, she was really cool about all the different attempts that I had. Oh, okay. But the thing is that I never knew. She seemed to like it most of the time, and I hear it back, and I just at a certain point you have to sort of let go and say, okay, if she's happy, I'm happy, because I wasn't sure I was doing it well. You know, other times I would get a. a well, you and I did a session with Ricky Lee Jones, and yeah,
3: yeah,
2: yeah. and it was and I was nervous going into that because I'd heard she could be very difficult, and uh, and I didn't know what kind of music it would be, and I laugh now because the first thing I tried to do on that song was this open tuning, sort of slightly out of tune Thurston kind of thing, <laughs> and that David Kalish kept saying to me, uh, Nels, I think your guitar's out of tune. <laughs> and I had to say well I, I'm actually doing that on purpose and he said something like excuse me <laughs> oh, I know. and I thought what am I doing I'm an idiot so I I, I gave that up and went into something else I tried to come up with a memorable repeating line that I, I was trying to come up with something kind of hooky you know well they didn't end up using any of my so-called hooky stuff they ended up using a lot of the Good fills and the, and the loops and, uh, and it, it came out really nicely, but but uh, once again, I mean my first impulse, in this case, not being a session guy, was a little bit too far off the beat track. Sometimes maybe just a, you gotta go to, back to the Jimmy Rolls and just play a fucking F7. <laughs> Sometimes sessions are like that, and, and it's hard for me just to say, okay, I think what would sound fantastic here is a s just a triad played on the first beat of the phrase, playing <laughs> a big straight chord. I'm getting better at that. I'm doing that a little bit with Wilco now where I think yeah. it's, where it's right. working on our new songs and coming up with things that I'm surprised at. He starts playing and he wants yeah. to know what we all think and how we're all going to contribute. Now I know that down the road he may rethink the entire thing because he's quite the brain. He tends to if, overthink a lot of stuff. So he may just decide to, to shift direction and we'll be in, doing it all over again at some point, I don't know. But right now I know he's very happy with where things are going and, and I think a lot of people are going to be surprised how the new material is extremely direct and I would say almost classic. Uh, almost like uh, Some of it's almost like uh, early 70s soul in a way and some of it's uh, sort of classic ballads. What about young people with the guitar? Do you have favorites you've seen? Oh, the, my favorite young guitarist is a woman from New York named Mary Alverson. She's 24 and uh, she's really great. I have a friend up in the Bay Area named Ava Mendoza. She's 22 and she's an experimental guitarist. She's also doing a lot of uh, uh, electronics. Uh, away from the guitar, but but playing the guitar into a mixer and using mixer feedback and um, doing a lot of really exciting things up in the Bay Area. Um, Those are the two young guitarists that come to mind. The other ones, when I think about it, they aren't really that young. For example, John Dietrich from Deerhoof. I don't know how old John is, but he's he's, uh, probably maybe pushing 30 or something, but he's a fantastic guitarist. I love John Dietrich's playing. Uh, not only in Deerhoof, but also in the Gorge Trio. Um, really, really wonderful. What about bands? Well, of course, Deerhoof. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love Deerhoof. I love Sonic Youth, as you know. We both love Sonic Youth. And I love Low. And um, Lowe, I guess, just are uh, getting a new bass player, Zach, left for the second time, and I guess this is for real, he's left. Uh, but I just talked with um, Alan Sparhawk the other night, and he sounds fine, and they kind of excited about whatever they're going to do next, and get back out and play. I think their music's really beautiful. Um, gee, there's a lot, I'm sure a lot of bands that come to mind. I, I heard some bands uh, that opened for Wilco, um, and one of them, I, I don't know if I actually... I'm in love with their music, but I was so impressed by how unusual their music was, which is the Fiery Furnaces.
3: Uh, the and brother and Sister. Yeah,
2: and they did everything in this endless suite. And uh, the music was extremely uh, intricate. And, um, and uh, I was intrigued and, and impressed by that. I really like uh, uh, Mastodon. They're a metal band. It was a great band, a, a classic kind of 70s uh, hard rock band from. Uh, Boulder Colorado called Rose Hill Drive and they' kind of remind me a little of the of the sort of Black Sabbath free Johnny winter kind of vibe and um, and they're just really really good young guys playing in a very classic style maybe a little bit of a zepp thing um, but very American really young I'm not sure they even know what all their stuff is referring to I think that you know stuff that that I think sounds maybe like it's referring to, uh... some classic Hard rock from 1972. For them, maybe it's based on Queens of the Stone Age. I have no idea. But they're really, really good young rock band. What is Carla Bo- Boslich doing with music now? Ah. She's kind of on fire right now. Um... She has her band, The Night Porter. They've recorded something that, uh... I don't know if it'll ever be released, but, uh... That's a band with Chess Smith and Shazada Smiley and Jessica Catron. And it's a real rock and roll band. um, Kind of a punk rock band at times. And also still, like Carla, uh, diverse and at times fierce and at times extremely poignant and melodic music. Um, She did a duet record of improvisations that were then later edited and uh, overdubbed. Uh, with Chess Smith, the drummer, a percussionist, and uh, still no home for that. I think it's. I listed it as one of my five favorite records of last year on a, something online. I think it's a brilliant record. And now she's working on a project uh, recorded mostly in Montreal with members of uh, Silver Mount Zion and Godspeed the Black Emperor. And Ephraim. Uh, okay. Yeah, Ephraim's involved, and uh, Jessica Moss. Uh, Thierry, uh, bass player, I'm not sure who else actually. I know Shazada Smiley also sort of helped produce it with Carla and helped write charts for some of the songs and I, I know it's going to be a very intense and very personal record. I think there's a good chance it'll come out actually, which is good compared to the other two I mentioned. I'm not sure about that exactly, but um, I haven't heard this one yet. She's kind of s- sequestered herself. She's doing a little bit of recording here. At, uh, in L.A. also with Ezra Buchla and uh, her friend uh, Erica and I don't know, it's a lot of different people so we'll see she's going to go up to Montreal and mix it I'm sure it will come out at some point next year, I have a feeling uh, it's going to be one of the most intense records she's ever done, it might be her masterpiece, I think it's very personal and I think it's very uh, perhaps very emotional, maybe in a not such an easy-to-listen-to way, which means I'll probably love it. <laughs> Thanks much, Nels. Thank you, Mike. Nels Klein, Watt from
0: Pedro Show. That was uh, December 28, 2005 on Interstate 5, head north somewhere uh, in the San Joaquin Valley. We talked for a while about stuff. Always good to hear, Nels. Yeah, it's a cool rap. Talking his talk. <laughs> uh, Happy birthday. Yeah, right. He just turned 50. He had a big blowout gig with his twin brother, Alex. Uh, one thing on the trip up there, I showed him that half-hour documentary I got on with um, Elvin Jones, different drummer. And Man, he said, Alex would like to watch this. I got one of these iPods where you can see the videos. Oh, cool, cool. So, tripping on that and his philosophies. Edmund was just a beautiful guy. Uh, I think in February we got four or five Banyan gigs at SoCal, but like I said, we're going to make up, try and make up that Mendocino gig because we'd love to play there.
1: So the newest Banyan parts. Uh, album is in the stores now, right? It's available? It's out? Yeah.
0: came out last fall. Uh-huh. It's called Live at Perkins Palace. Uh-huh. I played with Perk and Peter last night with Hellride in Orange County. Always good playing Orange County when I get a chance in the Orange Delivered Curtain. Deliver
1: cult, little culture behind the Orange Curtain. It was
0: like some <laughs> Irish pub thing in a strip mall. Well, you played there last right. night? Well, maybe three or four months ago. Uh-huh. So it was round two there. <laughs> a better gig. Still toy PA. Poor Carpenter blames his tools. <laughs> I could have played better, though. Next time we'll give it a shot. Jason, this cat, put it on. He just It's hard to keep a place open down there. But um, like I said, I've always enjoyed playing there since cuckoo nest days with Miniman. <laughs> um, oh, look at this. Yep, we're coming to the end. New Let's time t- piece. The new timepiece. Yeah. But it was pretty aware, uh, huh? Yeah. Digital. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, there's podcasts now, The Watt from Pedro Show. If you go into your iTunes and search the podcast directory for Mike Watt, I think the last seven shows are up there. Uh, tw- 1,200 hits a day.
1: Wow. first two weeks That's it's awesome. been up
0: there. So people are listening. Cool. To the Watt from Pedro Show. Love Grotto. <laughs> Pleasure point. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, end of hour one, January 15, 2006, Watt from Pedro Show. Hang tight for hour two. January fifteenth, two 2006, it's the second hour of the Watt from Pedro Show.
4: Straight out of Compton, crazy motherfucker named Ice Cube. From a gang called niggers with attitude When I'm called off, I gotta sort off Squeeze a trigger and bodies are hauled off You too, boy, if you fuck with me Police are gonna have to come and get me off your ass That's how I'm going out For the punk motherfuckers that showing out Niggas start to mumble, they want to rumble Mix them and cook them up in a pot like gumbo Going off on a motherfucker like that With a gap that's pointed at your ass So give it up smooth Ain't no telling when I'm down for a jack move Here's a murder rap to keep you dancing With a crime record like Charles Manson, my AK 47 is a tool, don't make me act a motherfucking fool Maybe you can go total to maybe I'm knocking niggers out the box daily, weekly Yo, yeah, well, monthly and yearly, until them dumb motherfuckers see clearly that I'm down with a capital CPT You can fuck with me So when I'm in your neighborhood You better duck Cause Ice Cube is crazy as fuck As I leave Believe I'm stomping But when I come back, boy I'm coming straight out of Compton Coming straight out of Compton
0: Show that was Coffee Brown with All Right. Before that, we had Estelle with Someone Should Blow That Sick Fuck Out of His Socks. <laughs> and we started the second hour off with Straight Out of Compton, a cover of W A song by Nina Gordon, who I think used to be in Veruca Salt or something. That's cool. <laughs> Very much. Like I told you, uh, Flea's going to get it to Ice Cube, so we we'll see what he thinks about that. <laughs> and now it's my extreme honor, privilege, pleasure to bring you for his first spin session of 2006. Brother Matt, the Spin Cycle.
1: Yeah, thank you. All the
4: people I know are musicians. I'm musician, musician, a musician. Use it. That's all I know. They
5: each got their own little thing that they like.
6: Great.
7: Voice projectile.
0: show that was Heather Lockie with her uh, this is something she did while she was on tour with the Eels last summer Is called Heather Travelog 2005 and that song was called Smooth Skin it was cool one of them uh, M boxes with uh, her uh, laptop I guess in the hotel after gigs it was cool viola singing before that uh, Brother Matt Spin Cycle good beats spacey trips thanks yeah (laughs) Um, I know it's first show of the year and stuff but we're gonna have to take like a three week break because I go on tour Tuesday
1: down under
0: yeah New Zealand Australia with the and Australia with the Stooges for the big day out tour I also got one of my own gigs. These uh, young Australian guys emailed me, hey, uh, we'll set up a gig, Watt, and you come and play with us. So, yeah. Cool. I'll do that.
1: Where's that going to be? Sydney. Huh?
0: East Sydney. At a Mexican restaurant. So a Australian Mexican restaurant. I'll tell you how the chat <laughs> is. Cool. And uh, <laughs> the other ones, you know, the big day out ones are in big, uh, like, fairgrounds. Uh. Like their version of uh, Lollapalooza. Yeah. The last one I did was 10 years ago uh, with Porn for Pyros. And now uh, I come back. I was there five years ago with Jay Mascus in the fog. So maybe it's like every five years I go to Australia. It's yeah, cool. <laughs> it's good land. Good folks. New Zealand, too. Um, kind of like Cali. Cause it's on the water and weather's pretty calm. It should be summer now because equator. Uh. It will be summer, not should be. <laughs> uh, did you hear about this uh, satellite that went up and got a piece of the comet? And came down? No. I think it came down last night in Utah. Yeah, they went and grabbed a chunk of it. They tried it before, but the thing crashed coming back. This one made it, so we got pieces of a comet. Oh, wow. And uh, maybe a lot of us... Um, Solar System History, locked in there. Uh. Let's see what's up.
1: Unlock a Once little. Once Yeah.
0: <clears throat> Which might not be as intense as, where
1: are we going? But would they tell us anyway?
0: Yeah. <laughs> right. Imperial Presidency. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they might have uh, uncovered all kinds of stuff and know all kinds of stuff, but <laughs> you don't tell us. We'd no. Know.
0: And if he did tell you it'd probably
1: We'd get some the, variation uh, or version mispronounced.
0: Or it'd have some back out clause <laughs> like, you know, I don't have to be telling you the truth if I
1: Pince freeance.
0: Yeah, if I don't think <laughs> it, you deserve to know. So, you know, my fingers cross cross your fingers.
1: Have someone do the thinking for you. <laughs>
0: But, uh, you know, as a boy, I was always interested in space, so...
1: Final Frontier.
0: It's robot, cosmic, not, uh astronaut, uh, tokai-not, Chinese call theirs. It's a
1: bodily goal.
0: And uh, at least we're checking things out. Because, yeah, we might get too crowded, might have to pioneer it up. Quick. Onward. <laughs> Start a uh, new Pedro. <laughs> Like when you go right and have a settle a new town. Like new Pedro. <laughs> 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 we'll see. Get the folks. Speaking of Pedro, you know, uh, I went to a few gigs here. At this house, um, Gaffey and, not Gaffey, uh, Pacific and 13th, you know about this? No. They have gigs in the living room. Wow. There was a band from Boston, and uh, I think they were called... Uh, Oh, God, I can't remember. A lot of people? All stressed out or something. God, they gave me their CD. I didn't bring up up. Uh, next show, I'll play it. They're pretty good. And, and some Arizona bands, uh, Oregon bands. I mean, like torn bands. Wow, cool. You know about this, right? Yeah, old. yeah. Uh, second man drummer in Europe. Uh, he knows these cats. And yeah, it was, I mean, it's a living room. <laughs> Yeah, like fifty people cramming, and the band's playing right there. And wow! Yeah, it was pretty intense. His band, uh, Killer Dreamer, was playing. Uh, I went and saw him play with uh, Eddie Vegas. Took me to Long Beach somewhere. Uh, it was like biker welding shop, put in a warehouse kind of area, PCH and uh, Santa Fe, kind of near where Minuteman used to practice. Technology Street age. or
1: something like that.
0: It was uh, Esther. But it's, uh, you know, a block south of PCH and a couple blocks east of Santa Fe. Uh And then uh, back in the old days, in the late 70s, uh, Suburban lawns had a practice pad near there in Magnolia. And, uh, or near Magnolia, and uh, Reactionaries played there with plugs and bags and Suburban lawns, of course. So I kind of know the neighborhood a little bit. (laughs) And... uh, Toys That Kill played, you know, Peter Roban and uh, Killer Dreamer. Oh, Rose cool. Band. But, uh, yeah, this homegrown scene. And, uh, you know, totally under themselves.
4: That's no, cool. No,
0: no puppet master, wannabe puppet master or whatever. Uh, holding sway. They sometimes have gigs at Harold's too, but the thing at the house is pretty intense. There's this guy there uh there. His name Aaron, I think. Uh, he's eight, 17 or 18 years old, and he's asking me what I read last, and he just uh, read some uh, Henry Miller. And <laughs> I was like, whoa. He, he told me his pop told uh, him all about me, saw me. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm at that age. So, yeah, I was much older than everybody there. But I really dug them having their own thing yeah, that's and not mean right, just... to be managed or Yeah, Um, you know, gig monitor or whatever. Uh, Quite healthy. That's Uh, cool. I I was very proud of them. And Pedro getting their little scene, little
1: yeah, stop on the tour.
0: Micro, hardcore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they they built their own uh, skate park here in town, and now you know gigs, putting on their own things. Yeah, that's awesome. Doing it self-sufficient. Yeah, totally and spontaneous. I was really proud to see that, you know, a lot of times I get out out of touch with what's going on here in my own town, and it was neat to see that, and obviously, yeah, these bands are coming and playing their living room, well, when they go on tour, they play these Someone other cats, is, yeah, living room. so, it's cool, it's the whole thing, well, we're coming cool to the end circuit. of the second hour of the January 15th, 2006 Watt from Pedro show, uh, coming up next, um, Jack, right, right. We just crossed the halfway mark, so it'll be the first of the second half. A moon of Morocco. Get into the mind movies. I was playing some of, uh, you know, uh, the adventures of Jack Flatter's with the (laughs) Farnells up in the boat ride, Uh the uh, the Banyan gigs at the end of the year, and he was tripping on it. He never heard of it. Uh Yeah, it's a trip because I think he even worked. uh, hung out at KPFK, but I guess he never heard any of these. But I did, so I got to play it for him, and he's tripping on it all right. Okay, hold tight for Hour 3. January fifteenth, two 2006. It's the third hour of the Watt from Pedro Show. Here's Part I of Moon Over Morocco.
8: are empty. Jack, the little Flassique, and her band of men move along the fringe of the great desert. They make their way toward the palace of Hassan Bizel. The distance that needs to be covered is far. The line of camels moves slowly as the sun sinks into the sand.
9: water problem, for a while anyway, but we follow the line of wells that stretch into the desert.
10: These are the underground rivers that, that run from the high Atlas Mountains.
9: Uh-huh. They pop up out of the sand here and there. They are the oasis.
10: I, uh, I take it that your main function is to be my personal bodyguard.
9: Yeah. The King Hassan Bezel and his sorceress queen, they will set traps all along our path.
10: Well, can we not just take a different route.
9: It matters little, El Kabar, baby, for the Queen has magical means to decipher our tracks.
10: So, in other words, we're merely riding right into their traps.
9: Well, as your bodyguard, as you call me, it's for me to sense out and disassemble these magic traps, and I'm pretty good.
11: Hmm. Each time the true son of El Kabar outwits the king, your myth grows more powerful. The people are attracted to you and will rally behind you as the true liberator. Yea, each trap unsprung will weigh heavily against the credibility of the oppressor. Uh,
10: tell me something. Wasn't it true that Hassan Bazel was once also known as the son of el Kabar, the
11: great liberator?
9: Well, that's the way it goes.
11: To the dog that has money, Minze, my lord dog. So the oppressed
10: became the oppressor. Hmm. It's the usual pattern. Uh, what route is this that we're taking?
11: Look! Ahead! What is that?
10: Rocks?
9: It is the first such marker upon our path. It's an arch.
10: A stone. Send for the Grand Vizier. up a cushion, wazir.
12: Oh, great king, O oh, most powerful lord, O oh, great sun in our eye, O oh, large moon in our face, oh... Oh, great... sit down. Oh, sit down. To hear is to obey. Good, good, good. Tell
10: me, my wazir, the knobs upon your head, what do they say to you about this
12: people's liberator who begins his ride our way this day? This day, yeah. Ah, a, f- a false liberator, carrying to extreme a feeble insult. Hmm. To threaten with a few mangy camels and a mere handful of jackals for men. <laughs> hmm, figs. Hmm.
10: And uh, tell me, Wazir, what do the knobs tell you of
12: this child of magic? This child of magic. or oh, the little flossee. Hmm. Well, I'm a mere child with some feeble knowledge of magic. Yes. Great figs.
10: It would please me greatly if the wazir spoke without his mouth full of figs.
12: Hearkening and obedience, my lord.
10: So, uh, this little Flossique is but a tiny threat, hmm?
12: Tiny threat? Oh, like a mere fly in my lord's couscous. A slight irritation. If our
10: traps snap and nothing is caught. Nothing is
12: caught. Mm -hmm. It is true, Great One, that... That, firstly, that the people easily lose confidence. Mm. For, secondly, such are the ways of Mm subjects. However, thirdly, the, the Queen Azora has... Has designed such tempting traps of such ingenuity that, <laughs> that fifthly, the escape from one provides the fourthly information necessary <laughs> provides the fourthly information necessary to sixthly catch him in the next trap, ah.
10: and so on. What is this? And so on. Seventhly. Mm. It is rumored this uh, false son of El Kabar also has a golden eye. Is that so? Is that so? I asked the question. Oh, true. Very so. He
12: wears the eye against his forehead like yours, my lord. The same? The same forehead? Uh. Mm. Oh, the same eye. Apparently. Mm. Such figs. Not too loud? Really? Low and sea?
10: Stop stuffing your cheeks for a moment. Then you agree with the Queen Azura. This man is truly dangerous.
12: Truly dangerous? <laughs> Would my lord knowingly squat upon a mad porcupine? <laughs> your point is
10: well made. Mm.
9: Stop,
11: y'all. Ah, the rubber tongue of the green leaper. Frogs. On the edge
10: of the desert. Shh. shh, shh. There's only a sliver of a moon. Doesn't even look real. It's really too dark to see much of anything. Come on,
9: we'll investigate.
10: Are we planning to camp here? Yeah. Wouldn't it be best if we traveled by night?
9: When the moon becomes more full, yeah.
11: Firelight is needed to safeguard the imagination, son of El Capal.
10: You mean this this battle of magic forces us to travel in the furnace of the day? Shh. shh,
11: shh. We can too easily be scattered in the darkness. And once scattered, picked off one one
10: wow what an eerie place it's all frog marshes old roman walls and mosques that have crumbled back into the desert those domed buildings tombs
9: yeah stay here I will sniff the
10: air for the scent of a set trap. Well, this is sure some place to spend the night.
11: It is the swamps. Old Burba saying, never turn your back on a frog. Hmm? In the caves, there are drawings of frogs with the strength of Ten rhinoceros. A frog? So it has been painted.
10: They get awfully loud at night,
11: you know. Bork. I beg your pardon? Bork, the great green bull leaper, had the strength of a hundred camels in a courtyard.
10: Well, these swamps are sure smelly enough. I can believe it. And
11: his tongue was a whip. That long. That long? Bork could hook a hawk out of the sky.
10: With his tongue?
11: Yes. That long.
10: That long? You mean just, uh, zitch, got him.
11: Out of the sky, swatch,
10: And it doesn't bother you to sleep here tonight?
9: It looks good. I suspected a trap here, but it's safe above ground.
10: Well, I'll refrain from burrowing.
9: Do that. Abu, get everyone to gather fire materials, but tell them to stay on the edge of the marshes.
10: Tell me something, Fasik. Don't you find this place a little creepy?
9: You bet. Come on. I'll show you the tombs. It's enough to make your skin creep. Wonderful. It's this way. I tried to get a reading from these tombs, but I can't sense anything. We'll have to have a look inside ourselves.
10: You mean we have to go into those things?
9: Just to make certain. No, the holes in the top of the dome allow enough moonlight to come in so we can almost see.
10: What are the holes for, anyway? To let the spirits out? Yeah. I think I'd better strike a match.
9: A match? A what? A match?
10: <laughs> a match. A, a fire stick. You know, these, these things in my head. Boy, this place sure gives you the creeps, all right.
9: Hey, quick. Bring the fire stick over this way.
10: Hey, did you find something? Oh, an inscription. Yeah. Does it say who's buried here?
9: No. It says...
10: Could you do that again?
9: Sure. It says...
10: That is amazing. Can you translate it?
9: Yeah. It says a handful of bees is worth more than a sackful of flies. Really? Mm.
10: What kind of tongue is that?
9: Frog tongue.
8: Let us sit bent, but talk straight. Meanwhile, back in Tangier, Cosba Kelly has closed his bar. Kelly sits alone, lamenting the disappearance of Sonny. Mojo tickles the ivories. Kelly assists his lament by slowly drinking his bar dry.
13: thing with Jack Flanders maybe maybe he poked a hole into a large vacuum and eventually all of us everything, tables, chairs cats, dogs everything's gonna be sucked right through that little hole and out into space that's been known as the big lip void boss yeah, well it sure sucks him in There's a damn good chance the Contessa di Zaninia has her paw in this mess. What do you think, Mojo, about watching that old witch fatmatage him? Mm. You think she got something to do with the Comtessa? I never thought of that. You think that's possible? Mm, yeah. Why? Uh, feeling, boss she didn't want me to follow her and she sent her owl after me her owl you mean the owl jackard was her owl i think so boss this calls for a plan why don't i no no why don't you mojo why don't you keep an eye on that old woman And I'll go see La Contessa di Zazzini, the noble windbag. You two don't get on too well, boss. That's true. We need a plan. Let me think. Mm -hmm. Yellow. Cosbot Kelly's. We're closed. Goodbye. gonna figure that I want to know what she knows about Sunny disappearing into the big lip void. So, I'll play it by ear, and maybe she'll, uh, yellow, Cosmo Kelly's, we're closed. Maybe, Mojo, maybe she'll let something slip. She's a crafty old bag, but she loves to talk. She knows a lot. I'm gonna be sneakier than she is. Yeah, she's kind of clairvoyant, boss. She won't know where I'm coming from. I'll sneak up behind her, and when her guard's down, the house! Yellow! Cosback Kelly's, we're Hello? closed! me Mr. Kelly! Mr. Kelly! Yeah? What a shrewd old bitty. Okay, he'll be there. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Guess who that was from. La Comtesse. That's right. The old bag's got a lot of cackle left in her. Well, you know what the burbers say, boss. What's that, Mojo? When the chicken's feathers are of gold. It ain't too smart to make broth of the hen. Mm hmm.
9: Ah, mm-hmm. oh, they've built a fire. Oh,
10: that feels wonderful.
9: Mm. You know, some people put faith into certain objects, you know, charms, things like that. To protect themselves. Mmm, boy. This is nice. Mm -hmm. A fire protects from the creatures of the night.
10: Well, I sure hope so. You know, I
8: I think I'm just about ready
10: to turn in. Mm. Mm. Son of El Yes.
9: Do not stray from this fire
10: Oh, don't worry about that I sure won't
9: There's a saying Have faith, though it be only in a stone And you will recover mm. Good night, El babe
10: Good night, little Flussik. Good night, Elkabar Good night, men God, those frogs are loud. They've increased. In fact, they're increasing by the minute. Something's fishy. I better go wake the others. Direction. It's gone. Now I don't hear it. No. The frogs seem back to normal. Was I dreaming? I better get back.
14: It's El Gabal. That voice. Where does
9: it come from? What dream? It's this El Gabal.
10: The voice attempts to enchant me. To lure me into a trap. But I don't feel it.
14: El Cabal does not fear.
10: You bet. I've never been so fearless in my whole life.
14: Strong El Cabal.
10: this. Way. I feel incredibly strong.
6: Brave El this
10: Brave El Cabal. This way. Ha!
12: It is said, a town's gate can be shut. A fool's mouth never. By
8: all means, make friends with the dog, but do not lay aside the stick. The Queen Azora is well aware of the myth of the giant frogs. And now Jack realizes what Abu meant when he said, never turn your back on a frog. Casbah Kelly has received an invitation from the Contessa, and so he's at the Contessa's villa in the hills overlooking Tangier.
5: I would like very much, Monsieur Casbah Kelly, that our differences in the past are set aside.
13: And Contessa, that's fine by me. Bien.
5: Mm, yeah. Maybe assume <coughs> Mademoiselle Sky and Jacques Flander are in a similar region.
13: How can we assume that?
5: You yourself observe both disappearing into the air, will oui? we?
13: No, at different times in different places, yeah. I saw that happen.
5: You have spoken to Jacques about his interest in uh, investigation into Stonehenge and other circles of stone.
13: Uh, we talked about that.
5: You did not talk about the Great Pyramid?
13: The Great Pyramid? We? Oui. No. We started to talk about it once, but he never got into it.
5: Jacques was interested in magic. He's a very practical man. He sees magic as energy. So, he tell me how the energy flows upward into the pyramid.
13: I'm really not that interested in the occult, Comtesse. I'm more interested in simply what happened to Jack and Sunny Skies.
5: It is not a matter of simply, Monsieur Casbacelli. <laughs> you see, the eye of the Great Pyramid signals the plot. Now, one afternoon, Jacques come to visit me, and he tell me this... Nearly 6,000 years ago, the Great Pyramid was built. It was part of an enormous engineering program. The object was the fertilization of the Egyptian plain. Perhaps even more. More tea, Monsieur Kelly?
6: Huh? Oh, yeah, Okay.
5: We know, you see, the Sahara was once a fertile area. Very lush, many plants, etc. But we do not know why they decline into the deserts. This takes place when the pyramid loses its tip and ceases to perform their original function.
6: That's uh, pretty far out.
5: A problem which faces all investigators of the pyramid is the missing tip thousand years ago travelers report the summit is not there so it is believed that the pyramid was never completed that is not so the last few feet in fact were constructed of a material so precious that it was removed before then long before the white marble facing was stripped to provide stone for Cairo long before the Sahara became the Sahara Desert.
13: That's quite interesting, but how does... Please
5: the... Monsieur Kelly. The Great Pyramid contained many secrets of mathematique. I remember how Jacques explained that afternoon.
10: The chief dimensions of the pyramid measured in cubits are base 440, height 280, with a slope of 420 the ratio of the side to the diagonal of a square is 55. But in this case, only the base, 440, is divisible by 55. But if we deduct five cubits from the height, the measurements become base, the same 440, height 275, and the slope 412 and a half. In terms of a 55 cubit, which is one great cubit unit, the pyramid measures base 8, height 5, Slope seven and a half. The five cubit high <laughs> This animal <laughs> getting into the here. The five cubit high tip of the Great Pyramid naturally formed another pyramid of the same proportions as the complete structure, and one fifty-sixth of its dimensions. Its vertical height, five, and the distance from apex to corner of the base, seven and a half, and from apex to center of base, lines six and three-eighths, are the same in cubits, as are those of the Great Pyramid in units of 55 cubits. Uh, let me interrupt. I I seem to be...
5: We are approaching the point.
10: As soon as the pyramid was divided into two parts, the upper forming a small pyramid, an actual scale model of the lower... A logical motion was initiated stretching in both directions. The tip pyramid must lose the last 56th part of its height, meaning there's yet a third pyramid atop the other two pyramids. The volume of this miniature pyramid is five cubic inches. The cubic inch of gold was the standard of reference in ancient times. Five cubic inches could be placed in the palm of the hand. Now we have three pyramids, the tiny top, which is the golden apex, five cubic inches in volume. Below, and 56 times greater than this, is the second pyramid, its height, five cubits, all but one fifty-sixth part, which belongs to the golden apex. And then, below that, the third pyramid, the great pyramid itself, which is 56 squared times larger than the first, and that is the last stage in the physical pyramid.
5: Good. Uh, You see? The Great Pyramid is composed of three pyramids. One on top of the other, each 56 times greater than the next.
10: But the Great Pyramid continues beyond its physical dimensions. For if we continue, 56 to the third power times greater than the tiny pyramid, the Golden Apex... We have a base of 8 miles covering 64 square miles... ...which is exactly the size of the plateau on which stands the Great Pyramid.
13: Hmm. And what happens if you continue?
10: 56 to the 4th power times greater than the gold apex... ...has a base side of 448 miles... ...covering 200,700 square miles. This covers the whole country of Lower Egypt. And 56 to the 5th power times greater has a base side 25,088 miles. What's that correspond to?
5: The equator of the Earth. Really? Oui, but there is more. You would like some more tea? Yeah. You see how each pyramid squares itself until it reaches the size of the Earth. But the motions stretch in both directions. We return to the golden apex from which we start. That is not perfect pyramid.
13: No?
5: No. For on top of that is a tiny pyramid. 50 60 size of the golden apex. Very, very small. I cr- could get a diamond small as a mustard seed.
13: That would make the seventh pyramid.
5: Seven. Yes, maybe more. You see how it stretched back and forward in both directions into a very tiny molecule and out into the universe. Wait.
10: What are those things? It's too dark to... Wait. Greenish, glowing lights that... Oh, my God. They're frogs. Frogs. Standing on their back legs. At least ten feet high. And they're walking this way rubbing their bellies. Oh, no. I hope they're not hungry. Feet, you better do your... Oh, no. There go my knees again.
6: The frogs.
10: They're circling me. I I think I'm being trapped. What was that? What the heck? They've got tongues 20 feet long. Yikes! Hey! I'm no insect. Hey, 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 listen, fellas, listen. I have nothing against frogs. Honest. In fact, I've always been rather fond of my little green friends. Ow, oh, that stinks. Ouch. i better think of something. Nice! and fast. Ow!
15: God, these frogs are merciless. Elk, come on. Who said that? El, come on.
14: A mere chicken. <laughs> chicken, chicken,
10: chicken. <laughs> yeah, well, if you were in my shoes, which just happened to be full of bog water. Yikes! There's
9: the saying Have faith, though it be only in the stone. And you will recover.
7: And you will recover. And you will recover. The
10: eye. I'll give him a blast from the eye. How do I do that? I, think I should rub it yeah. Do your stuff I everything is turning gold
11: They're vanishing.
10: The sun is rising,
12: it's morning. For it is said, he who sleeps in a marsh wakes up cousin to the frogs.
0: Show that was uh, the Mile and Ladies Auxiliary with Line Squall. Uh Montreal on uh Bangor Records. I think it was it's their debut thing. Sophie Trudeau from uh Silver Mount Zion. Uh Nels was talking about those people helping Ephraim. It's Ephraim's band from Godspeed, the Black Emperor. And they're helping Carla out with some recording. Uh, before that we had Ramming Speed.
16: <laughs> ramming, <laughs> speed. Chest. ramming speed.
0: Yeah. Not a lot of uh,
1: they knew what the vision there it was pretty. They didn't focused. venture off course. <laughs> no.
0: all the tightly wound concept. <laughs> Very the focused. Lyric there.
1: Very focused.
0: And uh, we started out third hour with part I of Moon Over Morocco. I. Jack tangling with the frog, and on his intense journey. Of course, what else? <laughs> With the journey be it. last week I played with Dose in Sierra Madre with Kell Johansson's band uh, that reminds me the day before you know Joel Nolte the last lives in Pedro now Ooh. and they got some of the old guys together and I went over there and saw him play I haven't seen the last play in like 20 years 25 years that no. so was a trip I think Joe's originally from Redondo or Hermosa but he married a Pedro girl Anyway, uh, the next night I played with Dose, Sierra Madre, with Kell's band, and Sacred Trust. Sacred mm. Trust, of course. Joe at Jack Brewer. By the way, I'm playing with uh, Joe Biza at the Arthur Fest. Oh, cool. At the end of February. Yeah. Unknown instructors. Uh, that jam thing. Uh, oh, cool. Where? We, yeah. Played instrumental behind uh, Dan McGuire, this poet from wow. Toledo. And David Thomas, uh, Volume 2. That'll be out in the summer right now, the first one. The Way Things Work, I think, is the name of the CD. Anyway, uh, Joe and Jack, the two Constants from Sacred Trust. and uh, They've got a vibes player now. And well, he's a cool. cat who's been on the scene a long time, Richie Hayes. Uh, I think he used to play with, uh, what was that guy's name? It was a guy that was heavily into Cap Beefheart. Ah can't think of his name. But anyway, Richie's on Vibes now. At cool. And he gave me uh, this disc. He's got some music. Everybody should be making music. So here we go. What from Pedro Show. Richie A's.
17: eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the mob we're trampling on the bill of rights your future we will rob thanks for re-electing us we're outsourcing your job and the troops are marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah! Though the future looks uncertain When creation's taught in schools We'll evolve into bigger fools And the troops will keep marching on Jackson sang a song for you and me with a glory in her bosom that appeared on MTV. As we kill to make men wealthy, let us shout morality and the troops keep marching on. Glory, glory in fuck, loser. Democratic Party, loser. Four more years of beating up on the queers and the troops keep marching on. know that Condoleezza Rice must have conned you at least twice cause the troops keep marching on glory glory hallelujah, Burton time to close the final curtain Dick Cheney's more insaney than the Ayatollah Khomeini. And the troops keep marching on. Marching on. Marching on. Marching on. Marching on yeah, marching on.
0: Show, yeah, that was intense. <laughs> that was hex screw Heck. with uh, well, we started off that set with "Battle Hymn" from Richie Hayes, and then we went uh, band from Italy called Motorcycles at Night on seventy nine right All right, uh, Italian band called Yeti with "Never Lose Your Sense of Wonder," <laughs> and then we had "Skinny wrists by the Geisha Girls and uh, that was just japanese crayons. Mm-hmm. Japanese crayons by hex screw. I think from Washington DC. <laughs> and uh girl sound like england. So all kinds of sounds from all over the world. <laughs> <laughs> the trip. So right uh, from the backyard. And it's good to know uh, people are listening to what from Pedro show. It must be uh, your spin cycles, Brother Matt, <laughs> and your witty uh, side, ma- uh, side mouse, uh, Ed McMahon
1: role. <laughs> The Ed McMahon thing.
0: <laughs> you know, people are just waiting <laughs> for the uh, windbag to be still so <laughs> and Brother Matt can come in with some.
1: All the cool local tunes that people give you on uh, touring around the country.
0: Yeah, that too, the music. Yeah. You know, misplace your town and stuff. Please forgive me. I just... You know the good part of Alzheimer? You're always meeting people, new. From, <laughs> <laughs> new people yeah. from new towns, new people from new towns. Yeah, I never thought I'd need some of those brain cells.
1: <laughs> Come in handy.
0: So what was that you gave me? Uh, truffle?
3: truffle.
1: Truffle. Truffle. Yeah, killer chocolate.
3: Chocolate from France. Yeah, yeah, yeah not the kind cute.
1: of pigs. I think pigs like root up another type of truffle or something like that. Oh, I think. Well, these have. These are pretty, pretty killer though.
0: But yeah, everybody thinks uh, Swiss chocolate, right, is the primo's. But being in Europe and stuff and talk to euros, and also tasting it, uh, it's the Belge. the Belgians. They got the
1: chocolate crown. Although
0: there's chocolate, good chocolate all over Italy, France, Switzerland. Mm-hmm. But Belgians really made art, like they do with the uh, those beers, mm-hmm. those Trappist things, and, waffles. Yeah, the Belgians. <laughs> Yeah, right. That, I remember Scotty, we were over there in uh, rock action. He was like, man, why can't you find Belgian waffles in Belgium? And I'm saying, Scotty, you got to walk around, man. I went into the old part of Brussels. They had tons of them. And the thing about Belgian waffles, uh, yeah, the waffle's kind of not that spectacular, but it's the toppings.
1: Yeah, it's berries in it. Yeah.
0: They put these whaling-ass toppings on them.
1: Everything. Kind of like a Sunday imagine, or something. I don't yeah, know.
0: imagine everything imaginable. And uh they even had little trucks with the side <laughs> opens up, you know, like our taco thing, but they're Belgian waffle. <laughs> <laughs> Someone in a feed up your bus. You're selling them Belgian waffles out of the bus. So I said, Scotty, Simon Sam and Ronnie like to sequester <laughs> you know, in the hotel.
1: Uh-huh.
0: The tell, as we call. It. And uh these pads are too special and exotic, you know. we got to check them out. Yeah, went in Rome. And uh, Yeah, like it was hard to find gyros in Greece, yeah. That was a trip. French there, fries there's fries. plenty of Belgium waffles still in Belgium. Well, I think sometimes the chow here from the immigrants, well, they've been here a couple of generations, so it's got a style back home. So mm. even though we're chowing them here because they're remembering the homeland, yeah. the homeland is like, moved on.
1: Yeah, you can't find the same stuff. Right. We were so, just talking about the Chinese food is definitely different here than the real down-home Chinese food. <laughs>
0: yeah. One day I'm going to get over there. Monterey Park probably. Yes. Oh, yeah. There's a restaurant there uh, called Little Animals. We're out of town. It's yeah, delicious. We're out of time. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Another edition of Watt from Pedro Show, the uh, January 15, 2006 edition. Uh, I'll be back from uh, tour to do another show in February. So uh, safe seas to everybody out there, and I'll, I'll try to do the same. Keep your powder dry.